My name is Grace Tazlar, and I serve as the missions director for Nurses Christian Fellowship. Uh, I have uh, done missions both abroad in Uganda, East Africa, and in uh, the United States in the state of Mississippi. So I have both domestic and, and foreign experience. When I was in Uganda, I, I did community health development, but also I had taught nursing for 13 years before I left there for there and got involved with the Ministry of Health and beginning the first baccalaureate nursing program in Uganda. So um, have a, that's a little bit about who I am. And I've invited uh, Dr. Pamela Marshall, uh, who is from Pakistan, uh, to uh, join us this morning. Uh, Pamela was one of the beginners of Nurses Christian Fellowship in Pakistan, and she currently lives in the Chicago area near me, which is very convenient. And then last spring, I got to meet Dr. Chu Yu Huang. Uh, we call her Chu. <laughs> um, at Cedarville University, they have begun a global health ministries program on the graduate level, it is, to my knowledge, the first uh, graduate program in, in, with a focus on public health, which is strongly needed in missions. So it was interesting that God brought across my path two international nurses who have come to the United States, uh, to first to study uh, for pa Pamela and, and uh, then to, to remain and, and, and minister here. So I thought it would be a, a good time to learn from them about what it's like uh, to come from another country to the United States to practice nursing since we as missionary nurses um, come from the U.S. and go abroad. So I wanted to start off uh, first uh, with um, Pamela. I'm going to ask you, uh, how did you become a nurse? When I was thinking about it, um, it, just as in any other culture, uh, when choices are made, oh, I shouldn't generalize that too much, but uh, in terms of the parents make the decision as to what you would be doing professionally, and back home, the decisions are made by grade 9 and grade 10 as to what you want to do. Do you want to take up arts? Do you want to take up science? And if you're not going to become a doctor, then you'd better become a teacher or a nurse. And so when I was thinking about it, I wrote for myself was that I really wanted to become what the Californian beach bum is. And I really <laughs> didn't want to do anything, just wanted to roam around, do nothing. And uh, like all Eastern parents, they were very, very firm with me got hold of me, physically put me into a nursing school. <laughs> and you won't believe it, but that's exactly what it is. Because my mother was a nurse and my grandmother was a nurse. So they knew all the nurses around the area and they knew all the teachers. So they said, this girl is not up to any good. So here, please do something with her. Thank you. So that's how I ended up becoming a nurse. <laughs> and you, how about you? It wasn't my choice to be a nurse. <laughs> it was determined by the national uh, annual exam and also my parents. At the time, the education system in Taiwan is very different from, probably a little bit different from the United States. So after I finished my uh, junior high school, which is like uh, ninth grade, after ninth grade, we have to take a national entrance exam and the school you got determine which school you go to and even determine your major. Like, if you got a low score on a national exam, uh, your choice is very limited. So I was limited to only a few schools, and nursing schools are always toward the bottom. <laughs> so then, um, so part of that was determined by the national, my performance in exam, but another was because my parents also, my dad actually uh, took me into a room, and then he said, you are to be a nurse. You will be a nurse, because nurses will be employed forever until right. the day you decide to quit. 
So it's <laughs> called job security, and that's how I it. <laughs> but this is an interesting thing. So after uh, after ninth grade, I went to vocational nursing school. It was a five-year associate nursing program. Five years. Yeah, five-year associate nursing programs, and I went to nursing school thinking I could not believe. I just absolutely could not believe it. I couldn't believe I would be a nurse. I absolutely hated being a nurse. Not until the fourth year in the program. So I kind of told myself, you will be able to get through this. And at the fourth year in the program, I decided, I think I can do this. And slowly beginning to love nursing, fourth year in nursing program. (laughs) And I, I will just share with you a little bit about nursing in Uganda when I got there. They followed the old British system, and so they had enrolled nursing uh, and then enrolled midwifery. And so nurses, if you went, and you did not need to have a secondary degree. You could go right from primary or just a limited secondary school and go right into nursing to to go there. Then nurses would, um, if you were an enrolled nurse um, or a enrolled midwife, if you wanted to upgrade, then you became a registered nurse or a registered midwife. Um, and then if you still wanted to go on further, you become, became what they call double qualified. If you were a nurse, you became a midwife. If you were a midwife, you became a nurse. So once you were doubly qualified, if you wanted to go on further, then you could do things like health visitor, which is public health, or become a tutor, which would become an educator, or you could become an administrator. And then some of the specialties were broken off there, too. They had a specialty in pediatrics and a specialty in psychiatrics. But all of those, those nursing education programs kept giving you a certificate. You never got a degree. <laughs> so you could go to school for 10 years and have multiple certificates but never have a degree. And the way the government was set up was that only degree people got compensated further. So the nurses, when I was there uh, in, in the late 80s, were working very hard because they said we need to get a degree so that we can move up the pay scale and be compensated accordingly. So part of my work while I was there was to assist them uh, to become a degree program. And what happened was Case Western Reserve University was hired by the Rockefeller Foundation to help them begin their, their degree program in Uganda. So that was pretty, pretty exciting to see. Um, how, would you, what, how would you describe nursing practice in Pakistan? I'll just give you a brief uh, overview of our system. Uh, basically, in Pakistan, when I was beginning my nursing, that was in uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, we had is the diploma program, which you got into after doing 10 grades. So you passed your 10th metric, which we call, according to the British system, and that's the time when you could go into a school of nursing. And Otherwise, then the other choice was to go two grades more, that is grade 12, and then join a nursing school. And at the time when I was doing, we still had the diploma program. And then, as uh, Grace was pointing out, we had uh, certificates that we could do to become charge nurses and to become teachers. And after that, in actually 80, early 80s, uh, Anyone familiar with the Canadian universities, McMaster University? So McMaster University, which is now known for its uh, problem-based approach, and everybody else is pretty much giving on to that bandwagon. Uh, So, however, McMaster University and the university back home started to say, if we need to move on with nursing, we need to have a critical mass of BSCN or baccalaureate nurses, and from there, move on to what next we want for the country. So it's actually around the 80s, mid-80s, that we got our first baccalaureate program, and that was in conjunction with McMaster University, where at that time it was known as developing the critical mass, so we had a group of 30, 40 nurses from Pakistan 
who came to Canada and we there got our baccalaureate and advanced preparation in whichever field the nurses were. And uh, from there we back, went back home and we started the BSEN program and after another five years we started the master's program. So we in Pakistan now don't have to leave the country to do a master's. However, my own travel, one second. My own travel has been that I was in 86 in Canada, then I came to Atlanta, did my uh, master's in um, public health, went back home, taught and worked for another 10 years, then came for my PhD. So just like Grace was saying, I was in, I've never been out of school since, I've been out of school since 2010. Before that, my whole life has been, I've been called a professional student. <laughs> Pam, uh, could you tell us a little bit about what it's like to nurse in the hospital? Okay, practice. Uh-huh. Okay, um, for me, as my name goes, Pamela Marshall, it would indicate to anyone in the country that I was not Muslim. That goes straight off the bat. And Pakistan is 99.9% Muslim. So that means... Point one of every hundred nurses would be a Christian. However, uh, because we, we were a British colony, our whole educational system, healthcare system was established by the, by the British. So we had those traditions and those foundations. And in that sense, um, because they were seen, and a lot of it was um, uh, nuns, Catholic nuns, and so on. So it was seen as a noble profession which none of the Muslim girls would ever enter. And even till now, the Muslim nurses will not practice with male patients. So, you know, that barrier goes on. And so in terms of that, there were two elements to it. One element in terms of because you were a Christian, you were laid at a higher level, at a higher esteem. Everybody trusted you and they expected you to be uh, credible and all those sort of things, trustworthy, honest, and so on. So that laid the foundation of the Christian nurses. And then when everybody started coming into nursing, realizing that it was a source of finances and uh, a way to maintain their families, um, the Christian nurses were already held to a higher level of quality of care and so on. So that being a little bit of a background, it gives only in the nursing area a sort of heads up to the Christian nurses and everybody trusted. So that was the plus point. Most of the Christian, uh, most of the hospitals and nursing schools at that time were all established by the British uh, government, and so they were all Lord Dow. Now, what is Lord Dow? King Edward's College. All these are med famous medical colleges uh, from back home in Pakistan, but they are all named after British uh, people who came to govern the colony at that time. So they gave us a big legacy and a heads up where nursing was concerned. So the practice in that terms was easier. However, over the time period, we are getting more and more fundamentalist and traditional, and it is becoming a problem. Now, there is no safety, security, in job. You cannot, you have to be very, very careful uh, in when you open your mouth, and what comes out of it. Because you don't know who, when, and where people are just waiting to pounce on you to say the wrong word or the wrong statement, and they say, oh, you're against Islam. So that is very, very critical. And you have, you're like walking on ice, sort of, in terms of what you say to your patient, how you handle your patient, and like as nurses, we already have to be sensitive to cultural differences. But now, the difference of the cultural differences is becoming political. And that is very, very dangerous. So we no more have the same cloud, the same protections that we used to earlier on. So 
Be careful what you say and what you do. <laughs> and Chu, how about Taiwan? How is it to practice nursing in Taiwan? Um, it's kind of interesting. When you think about nursing practice in Taiwan, uh, I remember, I mean, this is like, you probably feel like this is ancient time, but when I was a nursing student in Taiwan, I remember when I had my clinical, I walk into that nurse's station, if I see doctors sitting there, help, no, if there are three empty chairs, and then a doctor walk in, I'm supposed to stand up so the physician can have a seat. So, and then everybody gets to bully nursing students. Uh, bully, I <laughs> mean bully, like nurses aid get to bully nursing students. Everybody, everybody gets to bully nursing students. <laughs> and uh, physicians, this is very interesting. Traditionally, a physician and nurses have never been a team. It's almost like uh, nurses just carry out physicians' order. And uh, even if I disagree, I will still do it. But now the physician-nurse relationship has improved. So right now it's more like working collaboratively as a team. But there are a couple of things I thought when Grace asked me about nursing practice in Taiwan, I thought there are actually several issues I can think of. Number one is about that nurse's professional identity. Identity as a nurse. Try to think about what I just mentioned to you about how I became a nurse. Did I make that decision? No. <laughs> it wasn't my choice to be a nurse. And did I like it initially? No, I absolutely hated it. It took me about four years to slowly develop that love for nursing. So there will be people who never develop that identity as a nurse, but still have to work as a nurse. So can you imagine the the impact on the performance and the job satisfaction and going into workplace only to carry physician's order, although the relation is improving. So it's, that's why you can imagine the turnover rate is very high uh, among nurses in Taiwan. Another thing is um, there is a severe nursing shortage. Uh, severe, I do mean severe nursing shortage. The ratio between the ratio of the, the patient nurse ratio in the ER and the ICU is about one nurse to three to five patients. And then during day shift, the ratio is one to ten. Evening shift is about a one to ten or fifteen or even to twenty. So there's a really high uh, nursing shortage. But another what funny fact is that there's no faculty shortage. There's no faculty shortage, but there's a high nurse, nurse shortage. Um, I went online and did a little research yesterday. There was a news, uh, like last year, at the end of last year. Uh, there were a group of nurses got together and protest. You had to know for nurses to protest, that means something serious had happened. So nurses got together and protest about the low pay and then a heavy uh, burden from work. And the pay was compared to a street market, market that kind of like American people, uh, like a hot, a hot dog stand on the road. Nurses get paid less than that. So if I get to work hours and hours, uh, and then low job satisfaction and high turnover rate. So that's huge issue. And I'll just comment a little bit about my experience in Uganda. I didn't practice in a hospital, but I worked closely with a mission hospital. And uh, it was interesting there because nurses um, didn't provide all any of the physical care or anything like that. Um, the uh, family members provided the physical care and they provided the food. And so nursing was just really providing the, the treatments and the medications and following through on some of those things. So it was, it was not uncommon to have whole, you know, family members sleeping next to the bed um, uh, with, with the uh, family, uh, with the patient. And, and that meant that somebody had to leave the village and leave um, uh, the digging and, and the, the farming uh, to come and care for, for their loved one, which was a huge, huge um, Lost to the to the ongoing work of the family, so uh, it just is a very different thing. You know, we, we nursing here, we we take care of uh, the physical care and we provide the food. So that was that was something that was a bit strange for me. I don't know, is that true in Pakistan as well, in in Taiwan? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about ratios. I'm talking about ICU type of situation with one is to sixty. Uh -huh. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> very different, very different. Um, so tell me, what was it like, Pamela, when you came to Canada and then to the U.S.? How, how did that go for you? Uh, I think when you enter in as a student, I feel that the experience is entirely different when you uh, come in as a professional. Somehow the student environment gives you a protection and it also gives you a set environment where you can get to know other students and we are all in the same boat and that sort of thing. But of course, what would be called is the Canadian system when we came there, it was a Cadillac project. (laughs) it It was excellent because everything was taken care of and so on. But um, uh, the funny part or the interesting part was that when we were coming from home, there were like, you know, your, something which you really take for granted, your um, cafeteria, where you go around with your tray and you say, give me this, give me that, and so on and so forth. That's not something that we are exposed to. Everything is served in a family style. So, the, like, the thing was to then... They built, actually the Canadians had built uh, in Islamabad, the capital, a place where they actually taught the students how to take a tray, how to fill up the food, how to go until the end and, you know, be assertive enough to even ask the person behind the counter, hey, can I have extra of this, that, or the other? (laughs) They started with that and then they started teaching us how to use the bathrooms. (laughs) So, in that sense, you know, there was a major cultural change. Um, The flush system and all that is something that is only available in the upper, uh, higher income groups and so on. So, those cultural transitions were one major thing. Can you imagine in Canada wearing uh, those uh, snow boots, wearing a sari or even clothes like mine and running behind a bus? That was fun. The transition of food, clothes, environment, those were one whole aspect of the whole transition. And then the other side was... In our country, when we are practicing, I'm not too sure about it, but Uganda, I'm pretty sure, is saying, you don't have the infrastructure. You don't have half the things. Labor delivery, boils, or sterilizers, or autoclaves their gloves up till now. We just don't have the ability to provide for that at the rate that you wear your gloves and shed them off and don't even think about it. No way. Everything, everything is scrubbed, everything is sterilized, everything, whichever thing can be used and reused, is reused. So that whole practice is very different. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> I was asking how it was different so, to come here. Right, so I was on the correct path. You were on the correct path. <laughs> so that was the basic transition. Then... Uh, Because we came in a very secured environment, people were very friendly. But when you get into the market force and the marketplace and compete for jobs and stuff, that's when you really get to know the differences and so on. You you face a lot of, um, I don't know what you call it, discrimination? Mm -hmm. Like, because of your color, and if I have even Pakistanis who are lighter complexion than me, we would go to a hospital and they would ask that person all the questions. Not even asking me whether I knew English or not. But the whole part was that we all, because we are a British colony, I think that is one of the plus points that's left, is in terms of we are all English speaking, most of us. And we haven't been able to convert all the books of nursing into Urdu, which is our national language. Hence, Everybody after grade 12 has to have a certain level of English to be able to read the books and so on. So that transition was a major this thing. And just the availability, go into this clean utility room, grab a dressing set, and that's it. Uh, you know, and everything goes into the garbage after that. No way. 
So, hey, there's no water in the taps. So let's start with that. With bathrooms and water, <laughs> there is no hot water in the um, um, hospitals. So, you know, you are talking of very, very rudimentary availabilities, and even now that stays. Pam, did you have to get a license here, and how did that go oh, about? Oh, all right. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> okay. <laughs> The Canadians did not let us sit for the exams, licensing exams, because they wanted 100% of us to return back to the country. Okay. The Americans said, you can't enter our country and enter our educational system till you have our licenses. So here was a major contrast. So when I came for my, uh, to uh, Emory University for my master's in public health, I had to first sit for the nursing exam so that when I went out to practice, I would be guaranteed that. So I had to sit for the licensure exam over here and tell you some funny things. Is, so that was in 91, 92. Well, uh, then I went back home and I came back for my PhD, right? That was in uh, 2000. And Illinois would not accept nurses who did, uh, foreign nurses, who did not have their CGFNS. That is the uh, foreign, foreign graduate mm -hmm. exam. So even though I had passed my NCLEX, 10 years later I had to sit for my CGFNS and then I was allowed to practice. So for a year, because, uh, well, anyone who transfers from one state to another, you know how much of paperwork you have to go through and how many months it can take? Not just multiply it and make it international. So you <laughs> a year trying to get all your papers together. Hey, guys, I have my NCLEX. <laughs> you know, I, 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 am, I have an active license. What else do you want? No way. Illinois doesn't take that. So those were the transitions that we had to make. How is it for you two? Um, adjustment. I, I, I'm going to talk about two things. One is from education perspective. The other one is about practice. Okay. So I, after I got my associate degree from Taiwan, I came to the United States as an uh, exchange student, went to the Orange BSM program in Iowa. That was a huge, oh my goodness, it was so challenging for me. I, I can't tell you how challenging that was. Remember, my English, it was at only ninth grade level, really, in Taiwan, not here. And to give you, so after this session, you will know a lot about me. So let me give, share with you one funny story. When I first came to the United States that day, the vice president of that university invited us. It, it was a group of 20 uh, exchange students to his home for dinner. That was, that helped me realize how deficient my English was. So that vice president was talking to his dog. His dog understood what he was saying. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I had no idea. And that, that was the hardest thing I ever do. I, when I studied the... Uh, I, and remember, I am Chinese. Okay, we have a tendency that we must we require ourselves to finish all required readings, every page. So, and <laughs> one page took me three hours. One page, but I was determined to read through everything. Can you imagine how much speed I got? But that was the biggest adjustment I had to make. The, the language barrier. That was probably the hardest thing I had to do. And presentation, oh goodness, I can't believe how hard that was. But God was so good, he helped me finish my R to BSM program. And then I had to take my NCLEX. That was a funny story also. So I tried to find states that did not require CGFNS. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I found uh, California did not require CGFNS. So I took their NCLEX, did not take CGFNS. And I passed it, and at the same time, I applied for Ohio State University, their graduate program. So when I went to Ohio State, there was another transition, language and all, all kinds of things. I guess the hardest thing for me is that assertiveness. 
Um, you and I have met for only like 30 minutes so far, but you can probably tell I'm not the most assertive person. And uh, to give you one example, till this day, if people offer me cheese, I still eat them. And then right after that, I would say, excuse me, and I'll go to the bathroom and take care of my GI problem. And then I said that problem to say, I do not believe it's a good idea for me to eat cheese. <laughs> so the assertiveness part is probably the hardest thing for me to learn. Uh, that's the education part. <laughs> but I think I have, I have improved a little bit already. Okay. So about the practice part, when I uh, went to the hospital here in the United States, there are a couple of things that amaze me. Number one is that physician-nurses collaborative uh, relationship, working together as a team. And the thing is, for two group of people, be able to work together collaboratively, the assumption is that these two people really know, uh, believe, truly have the identity, uh, the, the fact that they are both professionals. That's, that's the assumption. And then that's the part that amazes me the most. What I really would like, if you have opportunity to come to Taiwan, I guess the biggest thing if you can help contribute to nursing in Taiwan would be to help with that collaborative team uh, practice. That's so amazing. And the second thing that amazed me the most is that when nurses, uh, nurses do think in the United States, <laughs> uh, most nurses do think in the United States, um, and then they are not afraid of expressing their ideas. So uh, then that's the part that amazed me. So I uh, just had to learn what I'm in practice setting. I had to learn that if I disagree, I will say I disagree. But I will provide sound rationale to support the reason why I disagree. But don't get offended if people disagree with me. So, but that's the part I, the biggest adjustment for me. So. Well, I thought it was interesting to hear their stories about coming to the U.S. because in some ways it, it reflects what it's going, we're going to experience when we go overseas. And, and we have to make similar kinds of adjustments if we're going to be good missionary nurses. And thank you, Ju, for pointing out that one of the ways that we can best help nurses overseas is to um, help them in their identity and, and their ability to uh, be collaborative collaborators and critical thinkers because what I hear often is, is that that is the critical need in, in healthcare missions these days is for nursing to have those, those kinds of skills and it takes a bit of, of ability to enter into the world in Pakistan or Taiwan or Uganda and, and, and assess what is happening there and, and do that in winsome ways, not in offensive ways uh, to, to work together to, to advance the, the profession of nursing. What I thought for the last few minutes, we have about um, 15 more minutes. I wanted to open it up for, to you for questions because um, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of questions that have, have come up. So, um, yeah. One quick thing. Uh, just picking up on the plenary speaker yesterday in the evening, uh, the one big thing that really hit home for me was that go there, get to know people in your country, they are your first line of learning how funny their thinking is and how different they do their things and so on. But in addition to that was uh, go to learn. If you go with a positive, open mind and a learner attitude, it is all different. Thanks. Okay, so I'm going to come around with the microphone so that you can ask your questions. I'm going to have to undo my recording here a minute, but... I'll let you hang on to that one. Yeah. Or why don't you just call it out and I'll just repeat it. Hey. Um, a question about in Pakistan, you had mentioned female nurses don't care for male, male patients. So are, is there a large number of male nurses? Or like where are the male nurses? Hey, okay. where are the relatives? Pamela, what about the female male thing? Where are the relatives? <laughs> So you conveniently use the relatives, especially if it's a male thing. And if it's in ICU, CCU, then no one considers. I mean, I was right here, and my friend's father, they didn't want any female nurses or females. So the doctors did some of the skilled work, like 
they will help us out, but more so the relatives, give the directions to the relatives, do this, do that. But it's mainly personal care, that sort of thing. They don't have any objections to medications and other things. But everyone perceives it wrong. They think nurses are an easy play. And we have a lot of rapes. And what she was talking about, the doctor-nurse, this thing, I was, I was lucky that I came out from a holy family hospital run by the nurses uh, and nuns. So that gave me what may come as aggressive and assertive. I never had to face what she did. But that was the reason. Yeah, Barb. around me, that is irritating. Like, I feel like I'm so irritated. I know people try to help, but sometimes when you be overly cautious, it's not the, uh, probably not the best thing to do. The best thing you can do is to try to understand uh, that person, talk with a person more, respect. Just because they are different, they do things differently, doesn't mean that's the wrong way to do things. Um, uh, be frank with them. That's important. Uh, sometimes you have to speak a little bit slower, but not louder. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. I often want to remind people, I am not deaf. If you can uh, repeat slowly uh, one more time, that would be just fine. Um, and give that person time to express the idea. And if you feel like, I'm not sure if I understand, or maybe I misinterpret, just ask the person to repeat again. I guess... I guess it goes back to the fundamental idea about God created us with dignity and then just treat people from the way God would like us to treat people. And that's it. Thank you. That's a good answer. Yes. Okay, what's the process for a nurse to become uh, a nurse in Taiwan and in Pakistan to practice there? It would probably would depend on what you mean by, well, how would you like to practice? What do you mean by that? For international missions, if you're going as a missionary. If you go as a missionary, I do not believe you need to get an RN license in Taiwan. But you do need to demonstrate, show the evidence you do have an RN license from the United States. And uh, I think there are a lot of mission agencies and some mission hospital in, in Taiwan. So there, actually, there are a lot of opportunities. Um, I just want to share with you a little bit that I have connections with a lot of my Taiwanese colleagues, uh, mission opportunities, and even academic collaborative opportunities. So if any of you are interested, I'll be very happy to talk with you about that. And how about Pakistan, Pam? Make it quick. Uh, Fulbright scholars come to us. Uh, we have... Uh, uh, a church from Texas sends out 
teachers during their vacation time, and that is just to acclimate people to uh, English language and things like that. So we do have a lot of opportunities, and they know exactly where to take you and where not to take you what is appropriate and what is not. For example, the institution I was working in, when we got these Texan uh, teachers to, for us, um, the van that went to pick them up was all tinted and curtains were applied and they were brought to the institution and taken back and they were escorted all the time. But they went to the communities. They actually went out to the communities and there are a lot of very low-level, low-grade uh, activities, but they are constant because Punjab, Balochistan, and Peshawar, have, you know, you heard about the church being destroyed. Uh, so we all have a rich heritage for Christianity, but not too many Christians around. Do you have to get licensed in Pakistan? Yes. Yes, definitely. You have to give your credentials to the Pakistan Nursing Council. Yeah. Um, I just want to share with you a little bit about the question, sort of related to your question. Um, before I came to this conference, I called my Taiwanese uh, colleagues and I asked them if uh, we have a group of nurses from this conference wanting to practice in Taiwan, what kind of adjustment from a Taiwanese perspective would you like to share? And then she said there are two things she would like to make sure that I mention to all of you. Number one is that she would like you to know that you are highly respected and loved in Taiwan. Basically, this is the nature of Taiwanese people. We just... Uh, I think it's Eastern. It's Eastern. <laughs> I think it's Eastern. That we love, we just welcome White people. Caucasians right? are gods. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you come in and we just love you, we respect you, and we want to accommodate everything, make accommodation of everything. So you are respected and loved. But that kind of reminds me that, which means you do have a lot of, a lot of uh, huge potential to make a lot of impact in that uh, society. It's depending on how you use that impact. So how to make that impact? I guess number one, you probably need to make sure that you do understand the culture, that country you get yourself uh, into. For example, what is the mortality rate? What is the life expectancy? Poverty level? Uh, for example, when people think about uh, Taiwan. Some people think about is it a, a country with high poverty. Actually, I just did a little research. It's the lowest uh, it's country with the lowest poverty uh, level. Yeah, but there is a it's an aged society. Uh, the percentage of people above age 65 is 11, and it's continuously growing. And the birth rate is declining, and so a lot of issues. So you do need to understand about the culture, the need of that place you're going, country you're going into. And I would say that in, in Africa, it's just the reverse. You know, uh, half the population is under the age of 15. So we have many, many more children and very few um, adults, and largely uh, because of, some of it's related to the HIV-AIDS crisis when we lost so many people, but also because um, the birth rate is very high and, and there are many people. So, you know, if you are, wherever you go, you do need to understand uh, what the people are, what the health issues are, so that you are prepared. Uh, you're not going to do gerontology so much as you're going to do pediatrics in Africa. If you go to Asia, you'll be doing geriatrics. If you go to her end of Asia, no. If you come to my end of Asia, yes. <laughs> we are so, still at seven children per family. Yeah. Um, I would just like for you to talk a little bit about um, midwifery and, and the availability of, of access to, to women because you, you have midwifery. Okay. Uh, a quick thing. It, it's always amazing. I have 1,000 deliveries under my belt. Can you believe that? In one and a half year? So you can, in, my, in our countries, uh, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, all this area, you cannot become a nurse without doing midwifery because that is our country's priorities. Um, low birth weight, common. Uh, poor nutrition, common. So uh, one thing I have to point out is technology has brought us to a level where we can access any of the U.S. curricula 
at any level and integrate it. But the question becomes the quality of the implementation, the availability of the infrastructure. So death rate are still very high, eclampsia, preeclampsia, and all those things, diabetes, chronic conditions are coming in. And that, that is causing a major additional burden on the whole healthcare system. Brain drain doesn't help. <laughs> Other questions? We have time for a few more. Yeah. Um, I just wondered, um, you know, in the U.S. advanced practice nursing physician assistance, um, how does that translate to your country's practice? Okay, the question is, um, how does advanced practice and PA kinds of um, education translate into practice in, in, in Taiwan? Um, in Taiwan, <coughs> we started to have uh, advanced nurse, uh, practice nurses, nurse practitioners in uh, 2000, the year 2000. Currently, there are only two tracks. One is a medical, the other one is surgical. For a person to complete a uh, MP, uh, nurse practitioner education, the person would need to have clinical practicum with a physician, not nurses. Um, and the, co uh, the courses, uh, a lot of courses will, will be taught by uh, probably half physicians and half by nurses. But the interesting thing about uh, advanced practice is that uh, nurse practitioners functions very much like a PA, only with less authority in Taiwan. So you can understand because of the whole cultural difference. Yeah. And Pam, how about Pakistan? Because of her midwifery requirements, it's funny. A registered RN can practice in uh, a registered midwife can practice independently, but a registered RN cannot practice independently. Uh, uh, to go back to that's what I was saying. The world has now become a global village, so I can get any academic this thing. My last this thing, I started up a master's program in my country in 2011, and the whole issue and problem was where are the role model nurses? Where are the advanced practice nurses whom I can link them up with? And that was my major challenge. And like you were pointing out, 50% of the courses are taught by physicians, and 50%, if you are lucky, you would... We, Pakistan has only 16 to 20 uh, PhD-prepared nurses. The government sector has only one, and I'm out here. And the other one is in Azad Kashmir. You may have heard of Kashmir. That, that's where in this uh, government setting. The others are 14 of them are at the Agha Khan University. So in that sense, we have masters prepared people. Qu question, quality, and experience and expertise. You will not find a problem with what they have been taught. They have been taught exactly what you have been taught. But do they know how to implement it? That's availability, infrastructure. <laughs> yeah. I just had a quick question, which seems to be a, a sub-theme, if you will, of this conference. Mm -hmm. And that is, I wanted to ask them both, do they find value then in short mission trips? Okay, the if question is... What is the value of short-term missions uh, if they were to come to Taiwan or Pakistan? That is a very hard question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, uh, that's a very difficult question because I've been thinking about that question for a while. Uh, I should say there is some danger about short-term mission. If you are there, I'm not saying we are, we've been doing that, but any place you go to, if you believe you are the superior person going into an environment, wanting the community to do what you ask them to do, that will not work. But if you go in as a short, if it's a short-term mission, but if you go in having people come to do the follow-up, so it's a kind of like a short-term, short-term, multiple short-term connected, that might work. But if it's short-term, coming in, say, you do what I want without considering the worldview differences and then try to change everything radically, that would not work. I guess it's depending on how you make it work. So, like I said, short-term with connection, that will work. But long-term, not connected to the community, would not work. So. 
I agree with that completely. The whole thing would be if there is a project going on and you take a piece, like um, people from McMaster and from John Hopkins, what they were coming to look at anemia in pregnant women. And uh, so the whole program was in place. And the students from John Hopkins and Harvard would come to do a piece, and even from McMaster University, would come to do a piece of it, which gives the person going in a sense of accomplishment, and you have achieved what the country wanted or what the group wanted. So that is a level of satisfaction all around, may it be for two weeks or a week or three weeks. But that continuity and the developed infrastructure to support that person. I, I think I saw that as well when we began the baccalaureate program in Uganda. Um, obviously, the nurses there felt a strong need to get a baccalaureate program going, and it was Rockefeller and Case Western that came alongside. It was interesting, my role as a missionary nurse who had lived there and worked with the Ministry of Health o over time was to be the cultural interpreter <laughs> um, for, for the case pet people to work with the ministry people because decision making is done very differently in, in Uganda. You know, we have agendas and we have point one and we decide, point two we decide. In Uganda you don't do that. You discuss all the points and then you come to consensus and somehow consensus is understood by the people there. I've never figured out how they knew what they had decided, but they had decided and then they were finished. And, and so um, having that kind of decision-making when you're coming from the West, if you've never experienced that before, uh, it was, was a difficult thing, and I had to, to work with them on, on that issue. Yeah. So am I interpreting it right to think that triage is a difficult situation in Uganda? Do they do it well, or... Do you have to just deal with what you get? Triage in terms of we'll in the hospital? In a surgery situation. Yeah. Um, I have a, a colleague who um, just returned to Uganda. She was home for five years. She was seconded to us. Um, who taught at McKenna University and then took on after I left, she took over from there. But she was a trauma burn specialist and, and uh, opened the burn unit at, at uh, Malago Hospital. And, and it really never, in her opinion, reached uh, the ability to, to care for burn patients well. And the reason was is that although they had all the equipment and all the supplies, the nurses had a difficult time knowing that they were using high volumes of replacement fluids, um, knowing that upstairs people were dying because they didn't have them. And, and, and they just couldn't make that adjustment to uh, rationing uh, that kind of health care. Um, and, and it was something that I faced on a regular basis with HIV AIDS as well. Um, we were given 13,000 ELISA tests in the early days and we had to decide how we were going to use those tests and, and there was considerable debate. I sat on the patient care and ethics subcommittee of the National Control Program for AIDS and we had to decide how we were going to use those. You know, when you have a country that was in as much crisis as that, we ended up deciding together that we would protect the blood supply using those tests, um, but it, it was a, a, a great debate. Um, we have gone past time, and I apologize, but thank you for your attention. I will, I will tell you that um, uh, Chu is with the Cedarville exhibit, and if you want to, to talk more with her, you can do that. Pamela has agreed to uh, be at the NCF exhibit over lunch, so if you want to talk more with Pamela, you can talk with her there. And I will be around. <laughs> thank you very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Thank you, please. Uh, thank you.